Right, today I'm on the Zoom call to uh, Sydney, Australia with uh, Rob Waterhouse. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us, uh, Mr Waterhouse. Um, uh, third generation of a four generation bookmaking dynasty. Was there ever yeah. any really, uh, were you ever really destined to do anything else? I think my family would have liked me to have done something else, but I just wanted to be involved with racing. I was fascinated by it. Uh, I'd always been hanging around my father's office and helping him do the settling and other chores. So racing was bookmaking and it was always very much a part of my life, even though I wasn't allowed to go to the races till I was 16. Uh, you said, so you were quite aware of what your father did f from a very early age? I was very aware. I used to go to the office every Saturday morning when he, at 8 o'clock and uh, was aware of the form work he'd done and listened to all the calls. He, we had a phone where I could listen to all his telephone calls. So I was aware of everything he did and how he thought about things right from the start. Okay, so he took bets off course as well as being a race course bookmaker? Look, in, it's had, there have been a few changes. In uh, those days I'm talking about, it was actually, yeah, I don't say it was illegal, but it was, was certainly not, it wasn't proper to take bets off the course uh, between friends. Uh, and my dad used to bet pre-post every day, and it was a, a big part of his getting the, the uh, his prices right. Okay. So you, because of the law, you weren't allowed to start clerking on course until you were 16. No, like I didn't go to the races. My father didn't want me to go to the races until I was 16. And when I was 16, he got permission me as his son to be a clerk of the races. You were supposed to be 18, but I got permission to be a clerk at the age of 16. Okay. Was that, well, was that something you were counting the days down to do? Yes, I suppose I was. Um, and, yeah, I suppose I was, especially during school holidays. I used to work, my uh, uncle and cousin were both bookmakers. And I used to work for them on several days, doing every possible job and uh, not terribly important jobs often, but did every possible job. And uh, it was a, I learned much. Okay, now I've read, I've read your, uh, your father's book, What the Odds? And it mentions yeah. in there that you met Phil Bull of Timeform. Now, what was he like? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, of course, Phil Bull was a character. Uh, and he was out in Australia on a tour with the, the jockey club and dad invited him for dinner and uh, also Don Scott, who was, um, I suppose, Phil Bull's opposite number in Australia and uh, used to work with my father. Uh, and we had a great night out uh, and I find myself quoting quite regularly. I remember he said over the dinner, a horse is a horse. A horse is not its most recent run which is very wise. I must say, I've, it's stuck in my memory for over 50 years. Okay, now, I also read that you, um, you, you started under your own name at the age of 18, which seems yes. very, very young, but given that you've had such experience, um, yeah. do you remember the very first day you, you, you went to, to the races to bet under your own name and the first bet you took? Well, I do, strange enough. I, I went to... Newcastle races on a Saturday, which was, uh, uh, I suppose, very much a provincial meeting, a very much a, a second or third rate meeting. And I was in the outer ring at Newcastle, being my first day. And there was a horse having its second start that was back from double figure odds into odds on. And 
I managed to see it going off and kept turning my price off and turning my price off. And I caught, I think I laid 1,000 to 800, which is a very big bet in those days. And I remember I only took $2,000 to the race, which is a lot of money to take to the race in those days. But I was very pleased that I caught it so well. It did get to odds on at one stage, but it did start uh, longer than five to four. It SP'd longer than five to four. And I thought that was a really good job to catch it so well. I was very pleased with myself. Uh, reading about the betting ring in Australia in those days, it seems like it was a bit of a fairly shark infested. Do you think the, the pro punters and the big punters saw you as easy meat being that young? Oh, I'm sure they, I'm sure they did. I think everyone that's new is easy meat, but I think I earned their respect quite quickly. And were there any, not, not particularly when you were that, that, that 18, just starting out, but were there any punters that filled you with trepidation when they came to bet with you? Um, well, I suppose it's, uh, true to say they were very successful punters uh, and you're very conscious of them but I used to find myself trying to lay the horses they weren't wanting to back and if I saw them backing a horse at longer odds I'd often turn my price off. I, I was very aware of them. I don't say I was fearsome of them and um, I can remember at times keen for their their business but uh, I was very conscious and very respectful towards them I suppose the way to say Okay, so, so you would use them as a mark in some ways? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it's a, absolutely. It's a, if, if they were happy to take four to one something, why would I want to be getting four to one or even seven to two about it? Okay, so what would you say would be the biggest chink in a pro punter's armour? Um, well, uh, uh, we have the expression in Australia, I don't know whether it's the same expression in England, of martingaling where punters often chase their losses and you'll even see pro punters at times doing it. And I think that's the biggest chink that a punter can have. I think it's yeah. a very serious error. So you'd give them a go then if they, if you saw they're on the chase, you would open your shoulders a bit and let them. Well, I was only thinking before the, the without doubt the most fearsome punter in Australia, uh, who's still alive. So I won't mention his name. Uh, he was very hard to beat. I had nothing but respect for him. But of course, twice a year, all of a sudden he'd run hot, to use the expression, and start to chase his losses. Uh, and I used to always join in. And I remember complaining about the fact that only, the only time I really wanted to bet him was when he was chasing. So a lot of people in the betting ring, you see punters come in with a blaze of glory and go again. How many in inverted commas, professionals did you see come and go in your time? Well, obviously still doing um, it now. Yeah, we call them comets, those people that come and go. And they light up the sky for a short time and then they disappear. Um, I suppose in the, the good old days, there were so many people who actually earn a living at the races, whereas it has become harder to the extent that even the successful punters, it's really more a hobby for them because the, the betting isn't as big as it once was. Uh, they, um, uh, lots of punters earned lots of money at the races in the late 60s, early 70s, middle 70s. That's all disappeared now. Okay, then when you, we'll talk about form later, but were you always an opinionated bookmaker? Did you go to the races with an idea? Um, I suppose I went to the races trying to maximise my, my winnings. 
And uh, I was, uh, I remember I had a, employed as a clerk, an ex-bookmaker, a man called Harry Broadley. And he said, I think it was very wise advice when I was 18. He said, you've got to make a book where you lay all the runners and get a good feel for it. And then you've got to choose what you want to bet against. And then you lay those. And that's, I suppose, sometimes I see myself as being both things. Okay. Did you price your own races prior to the racing? I always priced up. I don't say my prices are always that good, but I always did a set of prices. And, and where did I you couldn't imagine that? going to the races. I couldn't imagine going to the races without doing a set of prices. And that's a, quite a skill to learn. Uh, how, how did you manage? How did you learn that? Well, I used to watch my father doing markets all the time. Um, I, I, the skill is getting the markets right, not actually doing the markets. Uh, I suppose it's just something that you learn over a period of time. And I suppose if you said, what is my skill? I think I'm quite good at thinking what, how other people might mark a, a, up a field and where I think they've got it wrong. I think that's actually my skill. And just, I, I know it's a difficult question, but where, in a nutshell, where would you start? Oh, you mean in doing a set of prices? Yeah. Um, look, I suppose a, a, a crude way of doing it is actually to put down an, an, ordinal, an ordinal, ordinal number against each runner. In other words, the first pick, second pick, third pick, fourth pick, fifth pick, and so forth. And uh, then to say, um, take your shorthand way, but, uh, but this seems to work quite well. Whatever the field size is, divide that by four. And say that it's a field of 12, divide by four. That's a three to one chance of the favourite. And then go out three betting turns for the second favourite, three betting turns for the third favourite and so forth. And then adding it up and seeing what, how much percentage you have. That gives a reasonable sort of a market. Okay, and then once you've done your, your, your card, would you have... Would you take advice from card markers, people that sort of know a little bit extra? Look, we always had people around us doing form, uh, supplying markets. Uh, often as a way of people got into financial difficulties. They said, look, you, I've, I've owe you this money. Can I give you a set of prices for the, for the next year or two years and take call my debt, expunge my debt? So we always had people around us. And one of them, of course, was Don Scott, who... Uh, has written wrote many books on form study and was very highly regarded okay i've mentioned your father's book what are the odds in in that book yes. bill describes you as a form book genius would you agree with that i i, I think my father's very good at giving his son publicity i think he's very was a very wonderful father uh, unfortunately but, he died a few months ago yeah so we are sorry to have uh, learned that um did yeah. you how did you hone that talent look as a young bookmaker i remember i worked at 13 meetings one week i used to work everywhere i could and try to do prices even if they were quickly done uh, i think it's just something that you you actually get into the habit of and you keep trying to improve yourself uh, um, and of course in the last 20 last 30 years we've kept a database and have lots of uh, computer records. So uh, it's just something that you learn to do and you learn to do better and better. Uh, I've spoken to quite a few form, you know, form book experts and they're all very, uh, very much the same that they say, oh, it, you know, it's just something. But I mean, you must see something. Everybody's looking at the same information that you must yes. glean something from it that others don't. 
what what would be what do you think you see that the majority of people don't see that gives you that edge look um i think i'm quite thorough and i don't i'd like to think i don't miss things and i think the thoroughness often you find things that people other people don't find uh and i suppose i there uh i suppose there are a hundred different factors that are available to everyone in horse racing and some factors are overrated and some factors are underrated and i think that that i've got the skill to actually find out where people have overrated a horse's chances or or underrated it okay can you go into a bit more detail about give us give us a throw us a crumb about what would be something that's overrated well, I, I suppose a crumb would be to say that uh, anything you can see on the front page of the racing card in other words the, on the front page is the, the, the horse number the, the horse's name barrier position the jockey and the trainer and the weight it carries all those things are probably a bit overrated whereas the things that actually require more effort are underrated okay, now you uh, yeah sorry carry on Yes, well, I, I think jockeys are a good case in point. The best jockey is, you know, the best jockey, but it, it's usually no good to follow the best jockey because he's under the odds all the time. Okay, now you mentioned uh, you, you were ahead of your time using the form book electronically from quite an early, an early time. Has yeah, that well, has that made well? I assume it's an obvious answer. Has made form study easier, but has it devalued skills of people that were very good? Especially it's with the current totally books. It's totally the skills, and I might prefer it for computers not to exist for form study. I think people that have got good memories, uh, that advantage has been lost. Uh, if you have a, a memory, you remember every horse and what they've done, that was a huge advantage once, whereas it's a, no advantage now. So it has devalued those skills. Is it, uh, do you use like an electronic form book now as you still do all your own input and stuff? Yes, I, I print them all out, then I get a pen and paper and work away and spend six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours in a meeting, depending on how dense it is. Going, coming over to the UK, now I, um, yes. I was quite surprised to read that you'd actually worked alongside John Banks, who was a very flamboyant yeah. bookmaker, whose son still he is was. a bookmaker. Uh, can yes. you tell us a bit about yeah. him and how that came about? Uh, look, I... I uh, formed a partnership with a man in England. I think his name was uh, Kinghorn. And uh, we worked at a, uh, quite a few meetings and I had a, really enjoyed myself. I lost my money, I must confess, lost our money, I must confess. Uh, and he was a very engaging man, uh, John Banks. Very nice, very kind man. And we did communicate by mail afterwards. Uh, and I had lots of respect for him. I thought it was very, very, uh, lots of respect for him. Okay, now John was one of those uh, one of those characters that appeared to be on the radar of the racing community, uh, well, the, the yes. powers that be in racing, um, yes. and was brought down for you know various sort of re uh, reasons. Yes. Do you think that's something that uh, racing tends to do wherever you are in the world? If they see somebody that's getting a bit in their eyes, big for their boots, they try and bring them down. Well, look, I'm not making excuses for myself, but there's no doubt that's true. Um, you know, perhaps the, the, the greatest jock and jockey in England was Todd Sloan in the, the turn of the uh, uh, 19th century. Uh, and of course, he was, he just rode winner after winner 
but the the authority, the powers that be, got rid of him. And I, I suspect he did nothing wrong ever. So that's a that's quite uh, happens quite a lot. Okay, now we can't we can't interview you without talking about the uh, the fine cotton um, sort of event. You you were warned off for basically were acting as a commission agent, putting money on for people, um, and then stood down for what, fourteen years. How did that feel when all your life that you knew was sort of snatched away from you for something so relatively? Oh, it it, it was uh, it was terrible. It was diabolical. Uh, and I was terribly upset, and I, I never thought of it in 14 years. I must say, with the benefit of hindsight, I suspect it was the best thing that could have happened. Um, all my, most of my bookmaking contemporaries um, weren't there when I managed to get back to the races, and the, skill, the skills I had to develop, uh, they didn't have, and when I came back to the races, I was fully equipped to handle it, whereas they, they perhaps weren't. Right, so uh, in that period where you were where you were warned off, you became a pro punter. Now, was that a simple transition? Was that a case of just role reversal? Was it quite an easy one? Well, um, the real point was I had to earn a living. That was that was the the only consideration from my point of view. And betting was all I knew it was any good at, and I just concentrated and, and trying to find a, a way of winning at betting. That was totally the task. I suppose the famous story is that in Australia, um, trifectas were introduced in the late 1970s. I was the bookmaker at the Gallops Rails uh, in Sydney uh, and at the tr trotting or harness meetings, at the dog meetings. Um, in about 1978, uh, I remember this very clearly, uh, there was a champion trotter called, or pacer called Paleface Adios. And Paleface Adios seemed to have um, uh, retired from racing on quite a few occasions. Anyway, he came back on this particular occasion. He hadn't raced for about nine months. And he was trained uh, at a place called Tamora, which is right in the centre of the state of New South Wales. And um, my scouts had said that they thought whilst he'd won his Jim Carners, his trials, the time was slow and they just didn't think he had the same dash as he had uh, uh, before. Anyway, he was in the main race, the last race of the night at Harold Park. He was two to seven odds on, or $1.28 in the new money uh, in the betting. There was no money for him to speak of at all. I rode a lot of bets against him and got him to uh, four to five or even money in the end. And I imagine only $2,100, which is a bit of money in that, those days. But I was very dissatisfied. You know, I remember um, writing on the back of a race book a, a list of trifectas to take, leaving Palfasadios out of a place. And I spent the 2100 I got out of Palfasadios in trifectas. And he did miss the place. I did strike a trifecta. And I got back 62000 which I was absolutely in shock to think that I'd won so much money. Uh, and how easy that was. And of course, when I was off the track, I concentrated becoming a, uh, a, a, a an exotic player uh, with some success. So the, the tote markets must have been very strong in those days. They were, the pools were in actual dollars were more than they are today. And uh, 
basically speaking, we were define the, a lot of people took box trifectas and box vanillas. We were define the box players and my market was perhaps better than, than their idea and we had great success. Okay, so would you consider yourself a better punter or bookmaker? Um, I suppose I like bookmaking more. I just wish that there were more punters about to, to bet with me. Yeah, I, I'm, a bookmaker. I'm a bookmaker by trade. Yeah, so there was never any doubt that once you were allowed to come back and bet that you would? I can't tell you the people that told me that I was uh, mad to go back bookmaking and how hard it was and it was impossible to make success of it. Uh, happily, I ignored their advice, but it has, it has become progressively harder. In the 20 years I've been back, it has become progressively harder. Uh, so having been very successful on both sides of the fence, what would you consider the weaknesses and strengths in a bad bookie, good bookie, bad pro punter, good pro punter? Um, well, I... I I hate the idea of of um, people chasing losses. I think I've always been taught that when you're winning, you play up your winnings, and when you're losing, you go back into your shell. And I think that's very important. Um, as you would have heard, there's a, uh, a thing called the Kelly Criterion, which is really just a fancy way of saying you bet smaller as you lose and bigger as you win. Uh, and there isn't a punting group that doesn't use Kelly. Uh, I think that's crucially important. I suppose um, another story I tell a bit, um, without mentioning names, the most successful punter in the world, uh, his markings are obviously excellent. And he had two very close friends with whom he played cards. And he used to give them both his markings. One of them is a very emotional man. And whatever he had on top, if it tightened the betting, he'd back it. The other man is far more analytical and he just backed the overs, especially when the horse is blue. Uh, the man who was emotional and took the unders, he used to lose his money every year. The other man never touched his wages in life. He lived off the, the punt. So they had both had the same tips, but one was value conscious, the other one wasn't. Um, now you're, you're married to... Gay Waterhouse, who is a top trainer, top trainer in Australia. Um, you've been described by some as a secret weapon. Is that would that be true? I'm the the waiting gay saddlebags. <laughs> uh, so would you would you consider that bit being a high profile bookmaker is a hindrance to being uh, so closely connected to a yard? Um. Well, look. I'd like to think I just completely ignore the fact that they're gays horses and I'm only too pleased to tell her what I think and where in the run I think a horses should be and where the pace is strong or not strong or what should she be doing. Uh, but I, I, I do my own thing and I'm happy doing my own thing and uh, all gays horses that they don't start, they're not fitting well. And it just doesn't come into my thinking what she thinks about them. Okay, so it's all modesty aside, would you have a look at a big race and say, I think maybe the, you know, should hold up here and then sort of come with a run inside the final furlong, that sort of thing? Do you do a oh, bit of Ordinary races, I, I will give her my, I do a speed map for every event and I'll say this is where I think your horse will be in normal circumstances and this is the pace I think the race will be and I think your best chance of winning is doing such and such. I'd 
tell her that and whether she pays any attention or not, it's a different matter. Yeah. But I'd always tell her exactly what I think. Okay, so you also... And I suppose I'm, that's okay, carry on. I, I also am a bit of a believer in, in, especially with group races, of what you need to win that group race and what sort of preparation. And I'll often map out a bit of a preparation for her horses, which she might often ignore, but, but I still tell her what I think. And that's fine. Okay, you're interested in the breeding side of uh, it as well. Mm. Well, there's no doubt that the breeding is a, a small factor in doing horse form. Uh, and uh, as far as Gay is concerned, I, I, with the, the yearling catalogue, she probably inspects 3,000 3, horses a year. Uh, I'll look at each catalogue and I'll actually put down a, a price beside each horse, what I think a fair price is for it, uh, which just gives her a starting point, I suppose. Would the would study in the stud book be like a continuation of the form book for you? Would you look at it in the same way? Well, I do, but it's of course it's it's much more it's uh, much more all over the shop, uh, and you know it, it's also harder to make money out of. I must confess, um, I suppose I'm very aware of sires that are that are a bit suspect, and I'm very conscious of the age of mares and uh, and and how the mares themselves are performed what just all the usual things that people do okay now i mentioned at the beginning that you're the third generation of a four generation bookmaking yeah. dynasty yeah. Uh, yeah tom tom has now jumped the fence and he's uh i, yes. I interviewed tom at royal ascot a couple of years ago he's now a tipster and he had some high high rolling punters with him that have benefited yeah. from his uh knowledge yeah. do, do, do you take well, bets on his punters well, I've started a, an online business and uh, we do have some of his clients uh, betting with us. And I must say they're very hard to beat. Tom does a, an extraordinarily good job of finding winners and he's, uh, his record speaks for itself. Uh, you said about the online business, um, you, you price up a lot of events and also yes. Australia being so vast, it's almost like doing a card in a different country when you're pricing up Northern Territory, you know, uh, Queensland, etc. All, absolutely. Is it always, are your, do you always look at, is it constructed the same or do you have to approach each sort of area differently when you're pricing up an event? Mm. Uh, well, I suppose you mentioned the Northern Territory uh, in Darwin at Fanny Bay. It's run on a very unusual course. It's a, a, a dirt course, but covered with sump oil, which is very strange. And only some horses handle the, the, the uh, sump oil track and it's very different. Uh, and of course, pace is very important there because the kickback, uh, the jockeys and horses come back with covered with uh, the uh, sump oil stained dirt, which is very, very odd. Uh, and, but of course, Melbourne is actually a bit different to Sydney and Brisbane's a bit different to, to uh, Brisbane's a bit different to Sydney, Melbourne's different to Sydney. They're all a bit different. Okay, so do you still have a hand in pricing events yourself or have you got a big team or do you follow the exchanges to a certain extent I've these got, days? Look, I, I still price up the, the major meetings, but we do have a good team and we do a really good job of putting up competitive prices up everywhere. Do, do you give them a, a dry run before they're allowed to actually price up live events? It could be costly. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, now you mentioned that you've set up online now as well as uh, taking bets on course how does taking bets online and taking bets on course differ as far as decisions made as a business goes 
Well, uh, when I, I'm on course, of course, I'm betting usually on just one meeting and it's uh, very uh, intense. Whereas uh, online, we bet on so many different events, so many sporting fixtures. It's just everywhere. And it's, it's actually, a, it's just the job of actually getting prices up everywhere is the big problem. But we do yeah. a good job with it. One of the... One of the things you've got in Australia that a lot of the more successful punters over here are very envious of is the minimum bet rules that you have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how badly does that affect uh, a business like yours? And and would you? Well, yeah. Sorry. Yes. How, how badly would it affect you that you've got to lay these shrewdies a certain amount? Well, um, I'm required to let every uh, person on to win $5,000, which is what, two and a half thousand pounds. And look, that, that makes me very conscious of making sure my prices are right. And I think it's a very good thing, good thing for everyone. Um, it's, it sometimes happens. The shrewdies will have commission agents backing them everywhere and they won't ask for an amount. They'll just assume you'll let them on to win the regulation 5,000. And lots of times I'll actually call a bet to win 20,000, give them the ticket. And they get very cranky with me. They say, that's not right. You can't bet us to win more. <laughs> I said, but you don't mention an amount. If you don't mention an amount, I can bet you whatever you want, whatever I want. So would you, have, but at that point, would you have priced, would you have gone a bit skinny on the prices just before that watershed? You mean, would, would we be more... I reckon if there was no minimum bet rule, bookmakers in general would be more competitive. That's what I think. I right. think it's... Everyone thinks it's a great thing for punters, but I think it actually works against the small punter and obviously helps the bigger punter. Yeah, OK. Uh, so you still bet You still bet on course. Uh, one of my previous interviewees, a, pr a professional punter's mate, apparently bets next to you in uh, at Darwin. How, how, how is the on-course game now in Australia? Uh, but look, it's still still okay. It's, it's still it's still possible to earn a living and pay the expenses and what else. So you know, it's still okay. Uh, it's declined in the UK mainly because of uh, the betting exchanges. Would would that be the same thing in Australia? I think that's right. Um, the sad thing is that we've had lots of keen punters that have abandoned the on course to bet on the exchange, and they lose their money very quickly on the exchange. It seems to be a very good uh, money mincing machine. Is, is there anything that the on-course bookies can do to try and reverse things to get it, to make things back to where they were? Well, in our case, I'm not so sure, anything, but in our case, uh, every race we bet to losing figures and we've got, at any one time, you, you're probably, the punters only facing 103 or 104%. Uh, and I wish that it was a bit more advertised and they were able to show punters it was a great opportunity. Okay, is there a uh, last couple of questions now? Would you like yes. to be 18 and starting out again, but now in the current environment as a bookmaker? I'd love to start out when I was 18, knowing what I know now. Uh, no, I wouldn't like to start, and I actually would. I may well discourage a son from becoming a bookmaker now because I think it is so hard and tough. I think there are easier ways of earning a living than being a bookmaker. Okay, so finally, uh, you've had a long and successful career with a few ups and downs. What would you change about it if you could go back and change any point in time? I don't think I'd change it. I think I've had a wonderful career and I've done well. I'm lucky enough to have always had a bit of money in my pocket. Um, 
this is the first time we haven't been, my wife and I have been to England for over 40 years during the summer. And we, we've really lived the, lived the dream, I suppose. So, so I think I'm very grateful for my life. You know, I wouldn't change anything, I think. Yeah, just, just fine. You mentioned that. But what is the fascination? Why, why do you love Royal Ascot so much? Well, I've had more to stand there. I'm looking forward to working the next year. And we don't always go to Royal Ascot. We often go to Newmarket or Goodwood. Um, but the Royal Ascot's a great meet. They're the best horses race there. And they all come to Australia as stallions. You know, it's a... I'm sort of... Yes, I really, I really enjoyed it. It's a great time of year. Uh, so finally, what you don't, haven't uh, thought about buying a pitch and coming back and showing them how it's done for one last time? I've bought a pitch. I've bought a pitch at Ascot in the main ring at Ascot, uh, and was supposed to be there this summer, but I wasn't. But I'll be there next summer. Ah, breaking news! I didn't know that. Well, I look forward to seeing you there next summer. Yeah, yeah, Thanks. yeah. No, I, I, I took uh, Ben Keith's advice. Star Sports he helped me do the deal, and it was. I'm really pleased. Looking forward to it. Ah, breaking news! I didn't know that. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank yeah. you very much for your time, uh, Mr. Waterhouse. Great so, pleasure, Rob Waterhouse. Yeah, thank me, you Rob. very much. Thank you very Brilliant. much, Rob. Thank you very much. Bye. It's not just online betting at Star Sports. You can call us too on 08000 5 to 1 3 to 1 and speak directly to one of our friendly and experienced traders. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.